Radio Land podcast bill and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And today we're going to listen to an interview with Frank Gehry. Yes, we did an event with Frank Gehry this spring, this past spring, at a beautiful house in the Pacific Palisades. And I'm not sure if Frank Gehry needs an introduction. He's a a famous architect. Yes, very (laughs) Um, famous. And he talked about his life and his work. And it was a real privilege um, both to see him there and to uh, listen to his future plans for Los Angeles and his experience as an architect. Mm, Interesting. Do the future plans involve the LA River? They do involve the LA River. We couldn't quite say everything we wanted Uh to say about the LA River but he does talk about the LA River in this conversation. Uh, well, yes, I will be curious for one to hear what he has to say. So, Me too. And he was speaking with Joseph Giovannini, who is our architecture editor. Great. Okay, well, let's take a listen. Let's do it. The founding editor of LARP, Tom Lutz. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for coming. We've done a number of events with a number of amazing artists. I have never quite had the sense that I have tonight of standing with a world historical figure. And it's such a pleasure, such an honor to have you with us, Frank. I thank you so much. Joseph Giovannini helped us put this evening together. Joseph has been writing about architecture for Los Angeles Review of Books now for about five years, and we couldn't have done it without Joseph. And Joseph has been getting us in hot water in all of the best ways with his architecture writing, and I can't thank you enough for everything you do for LARB as well. And with that, I'll turn it over to Joseph and Frank Geary. Thank you. Frank and I go back to 1979, and when I was writing for the Herald Examiner, the much-revetted Herald Examiner, so I wrote for about four years before moving to the New York Times. And as I was leaving, Frank and I had coffee or dinner or something. And so Frank says, so tell me what you really think. <laughs> and, and so I've always thought of myself as an honest critic. And so I, I said, quite honestly, well, I've actually written what I really thought. And so I said, well, tell me what you really think about me, about my writing. And so he said something that's going to come and haunt you. He said, Maybe you should write more from the gut, because after my Ivy League, you know, 10 years of Ivy League schools, I've become quite cerebral, and so the gut. So I'm going to turn a little gut on you and start with a question about Trump, Donald Trump. Yeah. Tell me. <laughs> I was also told earlier tonight to be controversial, hit Frank hard, make him feel uncomfortable. So Okay. <laughs> yes, your encounter, he calls you, you don't return a call. What's, what's I turned him down seven times. Or work. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, 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 right. So how does he does he try to seduce you into working for him? Well, he wanted me to do the tallest building in Manhattan. That was 15 years ago. He said he'd been to Bilbao. With and he saw the building and he talked about it for a few minutes. I realized he'd never been there. <laughs> <laughs> He was petulant. All the things you know about him now, he was—he didn't like to be refused. The only reason I went to the interview was just curiosity because I was staying at the Peninsula Hotel, which is right near his place, and I had one of the kids from the office, and I thought it would be fun to expose him to this farce. 
<laughs> Did you go to his office or his yeah, apartment? Yeah, I went to his office. And he was despicable. He, uh, But he was trying to get me to do this tower. And I realized he'd never been to Bilbao. And he, when I said I wasn't inclined to do it, I thanked him for thinking of me. And I was very polite. And he got a little angry. And I said, well, I, I'm sorry if you're angry. I said, but I just don't feel comfortable right now working on something like this. And I looked, tried to keep being polite. And then I got up to leave, and I was going out, and he said, I'll give you two days. I'm going to do it with or without you. And he slammed the door. <laughs> and then two days later, he called the office <laughs> and said, he didn't say new, but I thought he was. <laughs> he said, and I said, I, I was not really going to be able to do it. And he hung up. And then a month later, I was at a benefit for the fire department in New York City. This was before 9-11, I think. And they sat me down, and they sat him next to me. And he sat down, looked at me, turned his seat with his back. And I said, Donald, you don't have to forget it. Why? You know, I'm sorry I didn't take your job, but you didn't. Have to. He said, I don't need you. <laughs> Well, that's my story, Donald. <laughs> Did you tell him he doesn't pay his architect? Then a few months later, I got a call from his office asking, because it was festering. He must have been festering about it, why I wouldn't do it. So they asked, really, why don't you do it? I said, well, I've got a lot of architect friends. I n named some of them, like Philip Johnson and so on, that never got paid. <laughs> and I said, I'm not in a position to take that on. I was really polite all the time. <laughs> to the end. But now I wouldn't be. So we go back to 1979, and in our frank discussions, I didn't know you at the time, but you came up to me at a reception or a dinner, or maybe it was a lecture. And you said, uh, oh, I understand you don't like my house. And I didn't have that opinion because I had never seen the house. So I said, well, uh, actually, I don't know yet because I haven't seen it. So I made a point of, of seeing the house. You probably gave me a little tour. And by the time I left, I still didn't know what I thought of your house because it was so unusual. It, it took a leap of understanding. You know, I was trained at Harvard, Bauhaus, and all this. It was moderns and high moderns. So I didn't have the kind of the filters to be able to understand it. But then I realized as I, over the years, came back to your office time and again, I could never anticipate what I was going to see because it was always a surprise. It was always so unusual. And I'm, I'm still trying to figure out my opinions about it. But so it's a pattern. And since you took on the LA River project, I'd like to talk about that tonight because I still don't understand, can't quite anticipate what you're going to do. And I'm sure it'll be unusual, it'll be surprising to everybody. And I'd like to talk about that as well. I'm not sure where it's going, but should I talk about it? Yeah, go ahead, please. Absolutely. I got a call from Mayor Garcetti and some people asking me if I, saying that New York City has a thing called the High Line 
and the New York was making a lot of money on it. And we had a 51-mile river, and he thought I could do something with it. And so I reminded his whoever was calling, it wasn't him, that the L.A. River, I thought, was a flood control project, and that it was not like a derelict railroad bridge that you could just put plants on that this was a serious something. And I said I would study it and uh, try to figure out what the opportunities were. We spent a lot of time, so that was put in the press. And then a lot of people who've been working on the river for 20 years came out of the woodwork and said nasty things about me, that I didn't know anything about city planning. I was a what do you call those kind of architects? Architects? Well, I did a thing, exhibition. It was interesting. <laughs> uh, then we met with some of those characters and assured them that I wasn't going to do anything that was going to take their jobs away from them. There's a whole bunch of people that think they own the LA River. You probably know some of them. And landscape architects and other types. And they've been working on it diligently, trying to do things. And the whole thrust of what they've been doing is to create the river as habitat and recreation, for recreation. And when we got into it, we analyzed what the Corps of Engineers was supporting and what the city was supporting. And they were supporting projects that related to habitat and recreation. And so we couldn't figure out where the disconnect was. We studied the flood control issues. I think a billion gallons of water goes through there and out into the ocean. When we took it on three years ago, we were in a drought. So that seemed like a stupid thing to let happen. And we try to investigate how you prevent that from happening. We saw people trying to plant near Frogtown in that area in the river. And there, there was a lot of talk about taking out the concrete because, and there, there's some of us who like the concrete because of the movie Chinatown and there's a romance about all that. But, and Joseph talked eloquently about it to me the other day, that it reminded him of Egypt and stuff like that. So you wonder, there's all this feeling about taking out the concrete, planting in the bottom, recreation, creating habitat, froggies, fishies, and birdies, Corps of Engineers going along with it, billion and a half dollar allocation from the federal government under Obama to create 11 miles, it's called Alternate 20, to create 11 miles of habitat, the 11 miles from Griffith Park to City Hall, to City, City. And so you wonder, why is this going on and why has not happened and there's money to do it? And, and so we created an index that we published of all the issues related to the river and we spent time uh, with public health officials with people at UCLA, uh, experts in the field. This is mostly pro bono. Yeah, I was pro bono. I 
I did this all on my own, and a lot of my office was pro bono. I got really into it. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. Now back to our conversation with Frank Gehry. So the, the index, we study public health. So south of L.A., Cudahy, Bell, Southgate, all those little towns, to almost to Long Beach, have a serious public health problem. There's no access for the kids to open space, zero. And so there are 10 serious diseases, but diabetes B is one of the major ones. And the cost to the taxpayer because of that for that area is $62 billion a year. So there's a lot of money spent and it's wasted because it's not paying off because there's no relief. If we can capture water, recapture it and clean it, so the first thing, in order to get open space, you have to acquire land in those cities. And that requires land acquisition, which means money, and the land is difficult to do. It's jammed and hard to, to buy things, to get parkland, to create enough parkland. The water reclamation requires that one of the best ways to do it is you, when, I call it Godzilla, when the big storms are on, Godzilla comes through, you divert water into some place and let it stand there till Godzilla leaves, then you let it back into the river under your control then, so it's not dangerous to get it, and you put it through a cleaning process and then put it into the aquifer. That requires land acquisition for the saving it for that 10 days or two weeks or whatever. So the other issue is the river cuts through communities. So Long Beach is half on one side, half on the other side. And there are facilities on the other side that these guys have to go here and, eat, and they have to cross the freeway and the river. And Boyle Heights, is separated from downtown Los Angeles. One of the problems we have there is that there is no connection. And so if we had a park that bridged the river and the railroad tracks that joined Boyle Heights to Los Angeles, it would make a big difference in our city. And so we started to study what that meant. So from First Street to the freeway, from Temporary Contemporary Museum to the river is a big chunk of land which has warehouses and 55% of it is publicly owned. And the rest of it is are warehouses and things that we thought could be acquired. So we brought in a developer friend, young guy, who's philanthropic and nice guy and asked his advice. Did he think this could be acquired what would be the reality of it? And once you acquired it, could you pay it back by doing development in a U shape and, and leaving a significant park that could be used for the water reclamation days? You fill it. So our design was a like a Indian step well that fills with water and then fused and 
but it was a flat, it wasn't a deep, it, well, it was just the shallow steps. So you would have a water park for a month every year, and then the rest of the time it would be a park. So that seemed rational. We presented it to the powers that be, and the powers that be said, great idea. Now we haven't heard any more from the powers that be. <laughs> Nobody wants to deal with land acquisition. So you get stuck, where do you go with this? The Corps of Engineers is spending a billion and a half dollars on habitat and recreation habitat for the 11 miles. So you think, well, can, what can we do to the river? You know, and you start looking at it. And we did studies that if you just plant grass in the bottom of the river, you have to widen it by, I forget, double some serious width because it impairs the flow when Godzilla comes. Now, you don't think Godzilla, I'm using that term, but as it's presented to us when we started, it was 1% of the time as this flooding. So it didn't sound like a bad deal, you know, 1%. We can deal with 1% of the time. Holy shit, when she comes, she wipes out everything. Everything. And we couldn't get anybody to admit that until in October, mid-October, the Corps of Engineers published an article and paper, many, I don't know if you've ever you've seen it, showing that 11 miles that they're studying for alternate 20, that they're going to build habitat, flooded and taking out 3,300 homes. And they're asking people, because of that, to acquire flood insurance. Yeah, it's on this map here. You can point it. So all the great part is the, is the flood zone. Uh, so it's considerable, and it, it stretches from Griffith Park down to through downtown. So I called the Corps of Engineers and the nice colonel, and I said, so you're working on Alternate 20, which is creating habitat in the river. Yes, sir. I said, you just said you can't do that. Yes, sir. I said, Oy vey. <laughs> well, what is it? What are we doing? So it's clear, became clearer and clearer that you cannot mix recreation habitat with the river. You can't get rid of the concrete. The concrete was designed by the Corps of Engineers to serve flood control. And anything you do to put in it, plants, wrecks that. That's why they're showing this flooding. And even though it's only 1% of the time, it's hell on wheels, and it's dangerous. So it leads you to start thinking about separating flood control from recreation. Now, how do you do that? I mean, if you want to have recreation, you got to acquire land. And so that's what we're struggling with now, is that you can't, I mean, you can do a lot of things, but all of it means land acquisition or coming up with some engineering thing that can do everything. And we're studying those options. And I'm not ready to publicly talk about them because they're still incubating. And we're can, you, can you talk a little bit about the potential? You have uh, basically a Duchampian found object that's 51 miles long. And it, there's several rivers in the river. So when I was in your office yesterday, I was told that you could possibly do a green river from 
Griffith down to City Hall, Center City, if you do a bypass tunnel. And so that would solve that, would cost a couple of billion dollars, but assuming there's the money, you therefore can have a green... Yes, green so each part of the, the 51 miles are all different. So in the valley, the uh, river is narrower because there's less water coming through. It builds up as it goes. And so there, it's easy to deal with it because the spans are easy. and So it requires a different kind of problem. Deeper in the valley, going into the valley, past Canoga Park, they have similar problems that you have in Southgate of yeah. lack of open space. So there's, there's a patch there. And I think the bypass tunnel, because they've got Griffith Park, you can tunnel through it. You could make the 11 mile. That's where I would spend their billion and a half. And it is cost a billion and a half to do the tunnel. Mm -hmm. Then they could have their habitat. What they are doing with the billion and a half when I dug into it, is they're buying lands. They bought the tailor yards, and they're trying to buy the piggyback yards. So the land acquisition will allow them to create habitat, and, but it won't be in the river. So what, you could buy that land somewhere else, too. <laughs> so there's this fantasy that the goddamn river is going to be this, this great thing. <laughs> it's not. And, but it seems to be a segmented river, so you could do a solution in one area that doesn't apply to right. another. And right. So you could have a river of five or six different right. responses. Right, right. And the thing that we've done that the other studies haven't done is, because most of the other studies related to L.A. Yeah. Well, everybody's involved with L.A. Well, yeah, it seems that L.A., we all love Los Angeles, we live here, we're Angelinos, but we have kind of an imperial attitude to the whole basin. And so people seem to think that if we solve these 11 miles, we've solved the, the, the problem of the river. Yeah. But what was fascinating about your due diligence is that you went south of Los Angeles to all these communities that are not as obvious, and mm -hmm. all the way down, you discovered all these issues, including health, and, and it's a different nature altogether, and you met with all the, all the mayors. So, so we took the time to meet with each mayor and their councils and their people for all those towns. Yeah. And we have created a relationship with all of them. And we continue to talk to them. They're worried about their health problems too. They're, they know they, they have kids. They tell us that they're worried about their kids. And it's, it's a real threat. And it's something we got to solve. My wife is a Latina. So I'm tending to spend most of my time in the Latina. <laughs> where the biggest problem is, and I would be happy if my efforts could help solve that area. Mm -hmm. And we have good politics there. We got um, Hilda Solis, supervisor, who seems pretty brave so far. <laughs> We've got Anthony Rendon, who's brilliant and feisty, willing to go to battle for so, it. So it's really a county issue, not just a L.A. issue. Yeah, and Mayor Garcia of Long Beach is young and feisty and willing to play. So I think the tunneling for the 11 miles through, they have solutions and, there's, and the money is allocated. So, And there's a lot of people interested in it already. So I think I'm going to focus on the 
part where there's nobody's interested. Well, it seems that they, we can talk about segments in the, the local communities, but it seems that LA is so balkanized that the river is a way to use it as a, you can use it as a zipper to in some way kind of unite. The yeah, well, that's what I thought. I thought if you built a park 51 miles, join, yeah. if you could yeah. do it, figure out how to do it, then you wonder what would happen with the communities when the kids from here went to those communities. What would those people think of that? Would they like that? Mm-hmm. All that stuff would happen. I'm, well, as I wrote in my I'd article, just like to solve the... If we could build the equivalent of one central park mm-hmm. in Southgate on that mile, we could do a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's 834 acres. I think there are several ways to do it. We're working on that. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to give up the potential of, of the whole river as a unification because it sort of divides the city east no, west. No, I agree with you. I, yeah. Come and help me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But, I don't. I'm involved with that. I have other philanthropies so I, mm-hmm. that I work on. Can you talk about some of the other uh, philanthropies? Oh, well, I've been interested in elementary school dropout stuff. And so California has over 100 schools where I think it's like 50% dropout to fifth grade, something like that, high, high dropout level. And the cynical thing is the, the prisons use those statistics for preparing the prisons for the future. And that's a fact. If you call the prisons, they'll tell you. They're proud of that fact. And so Michelle Obama started a thing called Turnaround Arts, which was very similar to stuff I was doing with my kid sister years ago, where we went to ghetto schools and had them build a city just in an afternoon, and and you could engage them in very quickly in math and civics and talk about city and blah, blah, blah. And it it was very, within four or five hours, you could get their attention. And I realized that was really powerful. That was 40 years ago when I heard about Michelle Obama's thing, I called a member of the leader philanthropy family in the United States, the Shrivers, who, who invented, who lived philanthropy, the whole family, everyone. And I got Bobby's wife, Melissa, and hired her to run the program. And we've been fundraising, and we've got 16 schools, and we bring an arts education program to the school. It's 100K a year for three years commitment. And each school we bring a a named person. So I took the Hoopa Indian Reservation School that I go to. It's north of Sacramento. And I've been there three times. They've been to my office twice. When they come here, we get them into Loyola Marymount and they stay in the dorms so they get a sense of college. These are Pre-high school, these are young kids. The Hoopa Indian Reservation is hermetic culture. The kids are being raped by the elders. A lot of drugs, heavy drugs. And there's a lot of suicide. And um, it's interesting. We've made a little dent in in it. I can't say we've solved anything yet. It's one little girl interviewed me three years ago, and she... It was like the best, one of the best interviews I'd ever had. She took time and studied it. And she was suicidal. And I was up there a few weeks ago, and she was bright-eyed and sunny and happy. And she's now in high school. 
and it doesn't take a lot, you know. And I took David Hockney to Menlo Park School because I got Zuckerberg. They are interested in their own education thing, and all these guys know better about how education than anybody, right? Or they spend a lot of money on it. A lot of it seems to get wasted, but I'm doing some work for him. So I convinced him to give us $100,000, which was really hard to get. <laughs> and we took Hockney up to the school, and David brought a bunch of vases and a bunch of flowers. And he went to the pick the vase, put the flowers on. He draws on the computer, and then he projected it on the film and on, on the wall. And he drew this vase with the flowers in front of the kids. And then we gave them each a computer. And these are 60% homeless kids. And they all sat there and drew this vase. With their, each had a diff, picked a different vase, different flowers. So they're all different. But, and then we got them all to stand up and hold their, with David holding his picture with all of them. And then finally we got Zuckerberg's guys to let us enlarge those pictures and put them as art in the offices. So that's happening now, I don't know. But what an impression it made on these kids. So, but you've you got to keep at it. And uh, I think we're getting artists to do it. I sat next to Whoopi Goldberg, who I didn't know, but I convinced her to go. <laughs> so she's, she's into it. And, but our artist friends are all helping. So that's a big thing. Then that got me interested in the prisons. So I started to question some of that. And that led me to George Soros, who has got a program to reduce the prison population, which I think is reasonable. We've been, I don't know how many of you have spent time in the jail. Some of you probably experienced it from somewhere, some point of view, visiting friends. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's obvious when you go there that, that more than a lot of those people don't need to be there. They're just caught in drug things, Latins, black women. And so we've been meeting with all these groups that have been in prison, come out, lifers and stuff, and trying to uh, develop what a prison should be or could be. The Scandinavian countries have very humane prison facilities. And so I gave the class at SciArc last term, and 10 or 12 students designed prisons. And then we're going to, I'm going to do it at Yale in the fall, and then we're going to take the kids to, the, the architecture students, to Norway to see the prison. And then all of this is going to be compiled, and George Soros is going to use it as part of his story of how to change things. And he's putting a lot of money into to that program. The other thing we did is a Palestinian-Israeli concert hall in Berlin. And we did it as a gift, designed it as a gift to them. I went and experienced the um, auditions. And Daniel Berenboim, he started it with Edward Said, who passed away. So Miriam Said is part of it. And if you ever went, you go crazy if you go to these auditions. 
a little boy with a violin who's Israeli comes front, and a, a girl all in black with an oboe who's Syrian comes next to the Israeli, and an Egyptian boy with a cello comes in, and a Palestinian with viola, and the four of them sit down and play music together, and I started crying. <laughs> And that happened all day. And so I decided I wanted to help. They had a, a space given to them in Berlin in an office building. The office building was being used. It was gutted, and it was being used for um, set storage of sets for the Staatsopera. And they cleared that out, and we were given that space to design music things. It turned out great. Joseph, you've been there. Yes, I reviewed it, and, and uh, as have many other critics, and, and uh, the New Yorker called it a masterpiece, and I would agree completely. So it shows you you could go to an office building or a warehouse and build a goddamn concert hall that gets rave reviews. So it changed my whole perspective on this. But it changed your perspective in a way that, that uh, I've written about another piece that's coming out in Blueprint, because normally you do your, your brilliant sketches and, and they're gestural and your guys translate them into sort of buildings, or at least the facades of buildings, because you, you wrap these things around the disposition of your program inside, which are usually boxy. In this case, your sketch was a plan. And so for me, it was, you're 88 years old, you say, and, and so at 87, when you were doing this sketch, you well, actually... I was younger just, then, right? <laughs> right, right. Yes. You transformed your technique just by elevating the plan, planning the elevation, basically. And so I would submit that you could do that in other buildings. The thing that happened, was, what really happened, is I offered to do it. I took it seriously. And the pro forma is you do seating and then stage right and the stage usually even though it was small hall you start there so you test the stage with risers and seating and i didn't intend that as the finish i just it's a way to start to say well this is what would normally be done now what are we going to do and i did a sketch in talking when i was talking to daniel about with ovals and i was just talking about you know I don't know what I was talking about. But it meant something, what I was drawing. But when I showed Daniel the stodgy version, I visited him at the La Scala, and he was on his back. He was in back problem. And I showed him this maquette and showed him, this is where we start. And he looked at me. But Frank, he said, you showed me this oval thing. Why are you giving me this goddamn standard? And I said, because we need to study it because you're going to need risers and all. He said, forget the goddamn risers. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he participated in a way, you know, that, mm-hmm. and that's important, you know, to have that kind of interaction that makes it happen. And I had that in L.A. with Disney Concert Hall with Ernest Fleischman and, and um, some of the musicians and Esapeka. So... It's crucial to have that kind of interaction. And so the Oval, we would never have really carried it much further, but we made it work. The acoustics, the same guy that did Disney Hall, agreed to volunteer with me. And we created something totally different that we didn't expect. Nobody. You, know. you have to imagine Baron Boy, he's, he, when he's on stage, he's so completely coiled. He's just a, 
bundle of energy, and, and he, um, he seemed to be conducting the whole hall. It was just an explosive performance when you felt it, the hall put you in the music. In, you were, I was sitting in the first row, but there were only four rows, so you, were, you could almost turn the pages of the, of the musicians. You were, it was just a thrilling musical But experience. Daniel is a control freak. He's brilliant, right. and he's entered boundless energy. Like I was at one of his rehearsals on, at another stage, where Zubin was conducting and Daniel was playing the solo. So Daniel's playing the solo. Zubin is in front of him with his back to Daniel and the orchestra on the other side and there. And Zubin's conducting and Daniel's standing up. (laughs) 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 I have one last question for you. So Um, he did get involved. That's what I'm saying. It was great because you need that. One last question. You were talking about your contributions with prisons and kids and, and the LA River. And to a certain extent, you've become a benefactor and you're in a position to be so. But you also said yesterday that you have always been and feel most comfortable as an outsider. But now you find yourself on the inside, but really at the center of the inside as well. Can you talk about that? I'm in the, the center here, right? <laughs> the arc of that transition from being the outsider. I'm that, still in my head, the yeah, outsider. I feel comfortable there. Does that feed your work, actually? Is it that impulse? Well, actually the, good the for river the thing, I am the outsider because the mayor's involved with all those other people. All of the, except for the guys in El Segundo, everybody's involved with the people who have been working on the, the river, who have over the years gotten tied politically into all the facets of it. So I've been kind of the outsider. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that. Well, you have to remember, that you remember certainly, but uh, maybe the audience doesn't know that uh, what you did in the 60s and 70s, I mean, you were looking at all these artists who were doing things and you actually liked it but you know at that time the prevailing ethos was Wilshire Boulevard everything was slick and chromed and and you actually put your career in jeopardy professionally because you started taking these ideas and thinking well I can actually do that here and and so you came off the drafting table so you applied the outside to the profession so you were I mean it was really risky to be uh, to be the outsider as you were at that time in the way you did it yeah I didn't I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure you knew what you were doing, but you didn't know better, you mean? <laughs> right. Well, and Caroline, my colleague from the Herald Examiner, said that the press has already always treated you well. But I have to say, you never approached me. You didn't say, oh, why don't you look at this building or whatever. I, I went to you because I found your work interesting at all times because you were doing something very different. Yeah, I never asked him. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. So uh, do we have any questions from the, from the hall? Frank, you had mentioned uh, earlier this evening uh, about uh, um, especially in architecture schools with approaching you, you have access to. <laughs> 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 and then uh, Joseph just, you know, talked about you know, about the outsider. And uh, it would be interesting to talk about, you know, a few of your struggles there. I mean, was it a particular building, a particular space, Should I tell him about the Disney Hall? (laughs) You don't want to hear all that. Well, Disney Hall was a competition, and I was 
invited, I heard reluctantly, I didn't know this, but to be one of the contestants. Right after that was announced, uh, I got a letter from a lawyer who said he represented the Dis Walt Disney family. And he said, could you come to my office? And so I said, sure, I went to his office. He said, I want to tell you something, Mr. Gary, you shouldn't waste your time on this competition because the Disney family, he said, there is no chance ever the Disney name will appear on a building you design. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, well, that's pretty straight. <laughs> and then he gave me a list of 50 things. I said, can you elaborate on what they don't like? And he gave me a list of 50 things that he was sure I wouldn't be able to do. And I forget most of them, but one of them was that I wouldn't understand how to use brass handrails. What? <laughs> <laughs> so when the hall was finished, I dragged them over there and I said, are there enough fucking brass handrails? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so that, I then called the powers that be that asked me to be, and I told them about this. I said, do you really want to waste my time, or is this... They said that the jury was... They named the jury, and I knew most people. They said they would guarantee me that whatever the jury selected would be published. They didn't guarantee me that the Disney family would accept it, but they said it would be made public. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll go with that. And I started working on the competition. About a, two weeks before we turned in the work, that same lawyer put out a notice that the Disney family demanded the right to override the jury, the jury's selection. But I was too late, right? <laughs> so we sent it in, and it was blind, and Lillian Disney picked art. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now, that was a competition model that had a different acoustician. It's not like the design that's built. So I was selected and brought into the thing, and... I knew the musician part of it, but the board part I didn't know. And there was a lot of uh, funny pressure that I had to select the executive architect, and which I did. I picked somebody who was a friend, I thought. <laughs> and work was started on it. We were pretty far along on the design. There was a project manager brought in from the outside. Project managers are complicated. They're usually failed architects. I mean, this isn't 100%, but my experience. And they come in and want to prove that they know better. Than, and so we were, at that point, already using a very sophisticated computer system and program from the aircraft industry. So we could knock this stuff out so precisely and everything. And the executive architect refused to embrace that system and they started doing the drawings the more conventional way. And so this construction was started on, on the advice of the project manager that the working drawings were 60% complete and that it, 
it was safe because by the time, and that most of the superstructure and everything was already done. And we protested that. Every week when we had a meeting, we kept writing at the end of the meeting notes that they weren't finished. They didn't, they weren't on time. They were way behind, blah, blah, blah. Nobody paid any attention. So they started construction and they wasted $60 million. It was out of 120. And that's when it all stopped and the garage was finished by the executive architect. I was blamed for the problem. And it was hard for me to even stay in LA. I mean, we did stay, but whenever we went anywhere, people would say, how could you have done that? It was awful for a couple of years until a new group came in and hired the Jerry Hines uh, company. Do you want to hear all this? So you asked for it. Okay. So the Jerry Hines people came in and they were supposed to do the forensics to tell them what happened. And I got a call from the Jerry Hines people saying they'd like to come visit me. And one day this tall Texan, John Harris, big guy, Texas, came in and he shook my hand and he said, Mr. Gary, you've been fucked. <laughs> anyway. Well, then for the next 10 years or so, nothing happened. And then, then there's another saga at the other end, which cost them another 35 or 40 million. Because this, I mean, I, some of you probably have experienced this. On all these uh, cultural projects, there's always at least a few people that are think they're from the building industry and they know everything. And they don't trust the architect. The contractor for the first go around that I told you about came to my office when the, I presented the first model to the board. And they loved it, and they turned to him. He was the contractor, very well-known contractor in L.A., probably the most well-known. And they turned to him and said, it's great, isn't it? What do you think? And he said, yeah, it's great, but I don't, you can't build it. The contractor? Yeah. Great. So I said, well, come downstairs. So in the parking lot, I built already the most two or three sections, full scale, of the most important parts. Because mm -hmm. we had this fancy computer thing, you, we could do stuff. That, and he looked at it and he said, oh, I didn't know what you meant. <laughs> okay. It didn't, it really didn't stop it, you know, from the beginning to the end, there were problems. Eli Broad saw the Guggenheim in Bilbao and thought, well, if they can do it, we can do it. And so he reactivated, he very, it's sort of important in, in yeah, recess, resuscitating the project. So here's Eli, he gets his pals to contribute a certain amount of money, he puts in some of his money, and the thing is being built. And I happened to uh, go on a tour of the building with him, and conducted by, maybe it was a tech Texan or somebody, you had said this guy was from Central Casting, he was the building manager. So I'm going up there, up the stairs, and, and Eli, you know, for me, it was as an architect and as a critic, it's thrilling. I felt as though I was on the raft of the Medusa with these waves of form and and it's just so spatially moving, literally. And Eli, it was sort of like the tail of a cat that just 
that regardless of where he's going, the, the tale is this way. He's very wrecked. He says, in the midst of all this commotion, architectural commotion, he says, where's the donor's wall? That's always a, <laughs> so, so we arrive at the top, he's happy, there's the donor's wall, and we proceed farther up into the building. And he, he's looking around with this look of disgust on his face, and he says, wasted space, because this is a developer who's, who's eliminated attics and basements and staircases from all his track homes just to get down to the middle. I said, well, it was around the bar area, and I, I said, well, that's where you go have champagne with a friend and gossip. And he, he says, still discussing, he says, wasted space. And, and um, I said, well, is next to the elevator, would you suggest that Frank conform the elevator cab so that it you know, makes it this part square while it departs? He says, wasted space. I said, Eli, you've saved this building, and it's one of the buildings of the century. If I were you, I would identify with it. <laughs> so he sort of shut up. But then we go into the, into the hall, and oh yeah, the, the, the construction manager. I mean, this is not a nobody. It's the construction manager. So between the client and the contractor and, and Frank, and, and he's looking at the structure, and he, he says very disdainfully, not one straight beam in this whole thing. Because it was still scheduled. So he's still looking. He still doesn't get it. And then we go into the, and this is a little off color, so we go into the uh, auditorium, and he points out the place where the air vents is uh, coming. These are all underneath the seats because you don't have it coming out this way. And he says, so it's underneath the seats. And he says, that's where all the farts get sucked up under the building. <laughs> and so by this time, everybody's committed. Everybody, and people are still hating it because they just can't get it. However, when the reviews come in, the music sounds, they're all on board as though they've always been <laughs> practicing their best. No, but they, the thing that hard for me professionally is that the 60, 65 million that was wasted and then in the second go around there was an equal amount wasted because they did hire a construction manager and he did look like central casting mm -hmm. and he was competitive with me and he wanted to prove that I could. And so he buddied with the contractor and when the contractor put in a request for at the end of the project for change order stuff of $50 million, it went to court. And we and the client had a joint insurance policy of $10 million, five each. And ours was not touched, and the Philharmonic's five was touched. And, and, so, and they got another chunk of money because this guy did bad things. So, when you talk to the Philharmonic about how much it costs the building, they'll tell you it was three twenty or something. The budget was two oh seven, and I have a letter from Steve Roundtree. Remember Steve Roundtree, saying that we met our building was on budget two oh seven, and that all the other things were wasted money because of everybody that knew stuff. So, but that professionally, that's. I give a lecture occasionally to business groups. And I don't very much anymore, but I used to say, who thinks my buildings are expensive? Who thinks I'm a prima donna? <laughs> so it just goes with the territory. Buildings look like something. Bilbao was built for 300 bucks a square foot. $100 million, 80 million euros. It's earned 4 billion euros since it's opened. It's changed. I mean, I'm 
once you open the door and made something that they're proud of, mm. it builds. I'm, I'm not claiming all of it, but it's sort of a re reverse. It you don't have to spend money to to do it. Is what I'm saying. In, in, Steve knows all the story. Yeah, but we know how to do that. All of us know how to do that. I think, I think we have all learned to trust our architect. No, don't. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Hall. <laughs> if you go to Disney Hall and you look at the donor wall, the high-level high donors, our name is way up the top. I think we're above Eli, maybe, <laughs> because we spent more fees because of all the fucking around, and the, there wasn't money, fee money. We had to eat a lot of it. Andrea Vandekamp got a, an accounting of how much we didn't get paid, and she acknowledged it as a, as a gift. So we gave more than Eli. <laughs> We're so grateful. Uh, among among the great architects in the room, Susan Morse, Joseph Giovanni, Giovanni, and of course Frank Gehry. We're so grateful. Thank you all for coming. We're gonna have coffee and dessert and continue the conversation. There are books for sale um, uh, in, the, in the foyer as well from Chevalier's books. Thank you so much. You've been listening to our conversation with Frank Gehry, recorded in spring of 2017. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistant from William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. <laughs>